0: Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, people, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. As I record this, curfews, closures, and social distancing orders meant to limit the spread of COVID-19 continue to sweep the country. The impact is being felt in communities of all sizes. While changes taking places are disrupting the lives of nearly everyone in some way, it does not discriminate. Food-insecure individuals, in particular, 35 million in the U.S., based on a count from 2019, and sadly, it's probably higher now, face particular challenges, and the number of people who experience food insecurity is expected to grow as industries and businesses continue to struggle. And while food insecurity is a complex and unfortunately not a new issue worldwide, there are many incredible organizations, like the one I'm going to introduce you to in just a minute, who are hoping to make a positive difference in the lives of those impacted. Robert Lee is co-founder and CEO of Rescuing Leftover Cuisine. Welcome to Brand on Purpose, Robert, and thanks for joining me today. Of course, thanks for having me. Little I know about you, I know some about you. I know that you grew up thinking that food insecurity and hunger was the norm. Your parents were immigrants from Korea. They didn't know English, made them difficult to hold down jobs. You initially chose a career in finance and you thought that could be something that would lift everyone, which I'm sure it has. You're still a very young person. I'm not even sure you're 30 yet. You did very well in finance and then you decided to leave to start rescuing leftover cuisine. Just tell me a little bit about what the organization is, why you did that, and a little bit more about the mission and the purpose. And I think it's been about five years now, right? Yeah,
1: honestly, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about, but I went full time in 2014. So it's actually been about six years. It's kind of crazy. You've pretty much covered my entire, you know, (laughs) kind of drive for doing this. It really is a very personal thing. I think it, was weird for me to really think about how food was really thought of as an inconvenience for most people and something to get done and to you know to just subsist and you know survive and keep continue keep on moving. I grew up thinking food was pretty much life and <laughs> at every moment constantly thinking about food. <laughs> I think it's one of those things where it really kind of shaped decisions I made and really kind of made me think about how I could continue giving back to throughout college throughout my decisions even after college and my career as well for me just to give you an overview and basic kind of understanding of the organization rescuing left of cuisine super long but self-explanatory name we essentially bring excess food from food businesses restaurants and different supermarkets and grocery stores that have excess food to those in need at homeless shelters and food pantries and the way we do that is really through engaging the public as volunteers through a web application, super simple, basically a calendar kind of confirmation tool. And uh, it allows people to actually be involved and actually rescue food and bring it to those in need. And so we started that here in New York and in 2013, uh, I went full-time a year later in 2014, and we've been able to expand it to about 12 cities across the nation. And it's been an amazing journey It's been crazy to see how many people also share the same vision of making sure that excess food doesn't go to waste.
0: Was your first partner, if you will, a restaurant or was it a grocery store? It was a restaurant. It was actually, we got two partners at the same time within the same block of each other.
1: It was Little Fox Cafe and Cantean and I think both of them actually don't exist anymore. Typical to New York, I'd say. But it's interesting. They were both on Keremere Street in Soho. And I was literally just going door to door and you know pitching what we were doing. And the same day, we, we got both of them. I remember that day, I was like, wow, this is actually going to work. People actually want this. We're waiting for an organization to donate food to, but got turned away from existing food rescue organizations because they couldn't meet the minimum pound requirement. So we filled that little niche for
0: them. I get caught up with like technical logistical issues. So this is food that ordinarily would have been thrown away. And how did you get around the Department of Health regulations where it's not kind of already packaged according to certain guidelines? I've tried to give food away. I, this is so stupid, but like, you know, we've had back in the normal days, we would have friends giving at the office or sides giving. Sometimes people would take the extra food home. And as long as it's getting eaten, I'm very happy. My mom is a Holocaust survivor, World War II baby. So like I grew up, if there's like half a radish left over, like you put it in Tupperware and you throw it in the refrigerator, you know, we'd reach out to all these organizations about. Like, nope, sorry, we can't take that. I'm like, really? Am I going to throw this away? You really can't take it? So then I would bring it home or to Westchester where I live. And I knew some different organizations where I can just drop it off and not ask them and just feed people a lot of day laborers and things like that. And they're very grateful. They don't care that it didn't come pre-packaged. I've got a half a tray of lasagna that I'm going to throw away.
1: 40% of the food we produce in this country is wasted. And when you think about like what that looks like, there's food that's in the kitchen at these food businesses that are leftover, that are meant for consumers but they're closing so they're basically going to throw it away even though it's completely clean and safe for consumers and all that stuff and then there's plate waste and there's it kind of has that full spectrum of people you know consumers that ate food and then leftover rice or whatever on their plate it's interesting for our organizations we don't really go around any regulations or anything like that we are in compliance with the standards but it is interesting in, in terms of ways for us to tackle food waste across that full spectrum right for food businesses that have excess food in their kitchen that is safe for consumers to eat, it's not packaged, as you say, but it is completely safe and able to be fed to consumers, it would be essentially able to be donated to those in need at home shelters so kitchens can receive them. For food, unfortunately, that is made at home, like probably your, your friends giving or something like that, unfortunately, we wouldn't be able to accept that type of food. For that, actually, we just kicked off a campaign literally yesterday, just in time for Thanksgiving, called Clean Out Your Fridge Day, or really it's Clean Out Your Fridge Challenge, because yesterday was apparently national Clean Out Your Fridge Day, which we didn't make up. Apparently it already exists, and we essentially are challenging people to actually just take
0: a look in the fridge and create meals out of the stuff they have rather than throw it away. In this COVID era, so certain restaurants have been able to sustain themselves because they became like mini grocery marts and they did a lot of prepackaged food and they pivoted or there's are doing an enormous amount of takeout. Others, unfortunately, are not so lucky. Have you seen an impact in the amount of food that you're able to redistribute to those in need because your partners themselves are not thriving like they were commercially pre-COVID?
1: It definitely has been really different because of COVID. I think before COVID, we were working with many restaurants uh, and, and actually a lot of offices that had catering from those same restaurants were from other catering companies. And after COVID, we've definitely seen restaurants either temporarily or permanently closed. And unfortunately, because of that, we initially honestly saw a huge spike of food donations right after the shutdown in March, even extending into April, where a lot of restaurants, basically pivoted to either delivery only but had all this excess inventory that they wanted to donate and so we essentially saw this huge spike but then nothing <laughs> as restaurants pivoted to essentially creating meals for the hungry and things like that we essentially want to continue to help in that type of space as well we currently actually have a partnership with Grubhub, who has been amazing supporting their restaurants and they donated to essentially help us work with their partner restaurants and our partner restaurants that are now creating meals that we can bring to our beneficiaries. And it's just one of those things that, you know, very COVID you got to be creative, you got to, you know, figure things out. <laughs>
0: That's essentially what has happened. And you, along with a couple of other guests I've had, you were basically honored being a CNN hero, which I think is amazing. What was that like? It's hard to watch CNN heroes without crying or without just like being incredibly moved. So what was that experience like? Did you get to hang out with Anderson Cooper as well or no? I didn't. Honestly, I think
1: a lot of the recognition has been phenomenal. And I think it's really been amazing. But with CNN Heroes, we were nominated, we got to be a CNN Hero, but unfortunately didn't get a chance to actually go to that fancy gala. <laughs> so didn't get to meet Anderson Cooper, but it honestly opened so many opportunities for us, right? It really allowed people to see that excess food can be donated instead of throwing away, right? I think back in 2014, 2015, when we were designated as CNN Hero, I think it really wasn't as widespread as it is now, the fact that you can actually donate food. No one knew about the federal law that protected food donors from legal liability. So it really put us on the map and allowed us to continue to grow and expand the way we can happen.
0: I have a note here that says that you've rescued over 5 million pounds of food from over 300 food donor partners to feed over 4.1 million meals at about 200 human services agencies across the entire United States not just New York, across the whole U.S. That is fucking unreal. That is awesome. It's a drop in the bucket in terms of how much food, 90
1: billion pounds of food is wasted. And so for us, we really see this as just a beginning and the movement of food rescue, I feel, is one that has been growing for years and really started to kind of take off in the past five. We're really excited about the progress we've made, but we want to stay focused on making more impact and continue to grow.
0: And I know there's still, like you said, a lot of work to be done in the U.S. This is a global problem. It's not just in the U.S. The U.S. has, as I mentioned,
1: 40% of food kind of waste. Across the globe, it's about 30%. And even then, it's just the sheer number is something that you can't really kind of wrap your mind around. But if you think about it as if you take just one third of the food that we waste as a planet, and bring it to those who are severely malnutritioned or or people that are food insecure, we could eliminate hunger. We actually produce way more than enough to feed everyone. I see this as a distribution problem.
0: And how do you intersect rescuing the food and then redistributing it with also meeting nutrition guidelines or making sure that the food is also kind of healthy. Without being preachy, I don't know, maybe I would rather starve than eat kale. That's just me. Unless you smothered kale and cheese and bacon, then I'll eat it. I'm just kind of curious how you reconcile those things because there is a school of thought that says, hey, people who are financially, you know, insecure and living in the margins, even though they can only afford McDonald's is better than starving. So I'm just kind of wondering what the thinking is there and how you reconcile that. It really is something that we think about a lot. In terms of nutrition profile and in the beginning
1: when we were just starting out, maybe one or two years in, we were just looking back at our food donor partners and we realized we're only working with bakery. (laughs) We were like risking all this bread and carbs and not that that's terrible. Our perspective is we can donate this bread and essentially Reduce the cost burden for our partner homeless shelters and soup kitchens so that they don't have to buy the bread anymore and essentially just use that money for more long term things like job skills trainings and things like that. But to kind of go back to the question here, I think the way we kind of look at it is looking at this and the overall kind of numbers, the fact that we have 40% of food going away, and the fact that we just need one third of that to eliminate hunger, it leaves about two thirds left over of waste that we still need to reduce somehow. And in in our perspective, we can almost be selective in terms of how we do our outreach, and how we choose to partner with food donor partners who can get us that diverse nutritional profile to ensure that we're not just (laughs) rescuing carbs again like we did in the past and really make sure that we are getting fresh fruits and vegetables from grocery stores bread from bakeries, protein from meat markets and meat shops, and things like that, and really ensure that we're filling the gaps and rescuing this food, but also doing it in a way that will
0: not perpetuate health issues. That's incredibly admirable. And it's an ongoing process, right? You're probably learning every day, and it also depends on who you're partnering with. How do you actually fund the operation right now? Is it through grants? Is it through donations? Do your partners also provide cash support in addition to in-kind and or food support? All those things, me coming from Jake Morgan and finance, I I think
1: most of what I was imagining the nonprofit space to be was focused on foundations and things like that. That's when we were in the early stages, we were definitely funded by a lot of foundations and corporations. But as we matured as an organization, as we grew, it became very apparent that individual donations and events and things like that were really important. And one of the things that we at RLC are very keen on is just making sure that our revenue streams are as diversified as possible to kind of also make sure that things like COVID don't disrupt us too much, right? And I think we were really fortunate not to be too worried about COVID in terms of our funding streams. About one third of our funding stream came from earned revenue where a fee is charged to our food donor partners. And at first, it sounds kind of crazy, like you get both the food and the money (laughs) from the food donor partners, but it really kind of helps align the incentives and also allows for the food donor partner to get some value out of this. They pay for the service for us to transport the food from their location to where it's needed most. They get enhanced tax deductions. They can reduce their food disposal costs
0: instead of paying for a hauler to get rid of that trash. They can actually save some costs of that. And they also get to tell their customers that we participate in this amazing program. So come dine here because we have a heart and we care. and We're not going to just go throw food away that we don't use.
1: You as a consumer wants to eat at a place that shares the same values as you do. And you want to support restaurants and eateries that actually care more than just the bottom line. <laughs> and I think that's part of the trend. And I think that's part of the movement because Once leading brands started doing this, it was very easy to convince others. (laughs) They all do an amazing job of leading the way of donating what excess they have. And I think overall, just to go back to the funding issue, like with COVID, it really disrupted that because of the fact that they were closed and temporarily not making revenue, but it allowed us to stay diversified in terms of getting more support from other means, from foundations, individuals, corporations. I think overall, we want to continue down that path.
0: I just want to point out a huge difference between me and you when you're in college it's my understanding that you had already thought about this idea and you were doing something similar Meanwhile, what I would do is I would go to the Roy Rogers on 18th and I Street right around midnight, 1am, because I knew that they had to throw away the food that they didn't serve. And I was a struggling college student and I would get mashed potatoes, not roast beef, but fake roast beef sandwiches for free because I knew they were going to throw it away anyway. And I wasn't ready to dumpster dive, but you know, maybe I'd been drinking a little bit too much. You were already like on the front end of that. Everybody wins, right? I get to like absorb the alcohol in my stomach with food that would have been thrown away and it's comfort food and who wasted right there's an app that we partnered with called food for all they're based out of boston in new york and they essentially
1: have this model where they actually sell the excess from like delis it's perfect right because then the business gets to sell as much as they can for a reduced price and college students and anyone else can benefit on value that they can save on and we just get whatever excess they can't sell and so everyone kind of wins in that process and we reduce waste pretty much at every step of the way
0: Let me ask you this. I mean, I think that for those of us who are privileged to have so much more than others, COVID has also given us a new kind of sensibility where we don't take hopefully as much for granted as we once had before. And it could be as something as simple as being able to safely get on Metro North to commute into the city or to take a vacation with our family. I was just wondering when you sit down, whether it's a snack or a meal, however many times a day, for me, I eat like ten times a day. I imagine that you've never ever in your life have ever taken food for granted and you never ever will, based on how you grew up and the way you've looked at and devoted your career in your life For me, food is something that I think a lot about, obviously <laughs> There are
1: days when you have to eat really quickly or you're in between meetings and things like that, and it's not like a sometimes a conscious thing but Whenever there's excess food, I always save it. It's just one of those things where it's a process, right? And it's trying to improve more and more. And I think tips that reminded myself on, I put on my fridge with a magnet and things like that, that really just help. I think that's the most that anyone can ask for, right? And I think just being conscious of it and trying to improve little by little is
0: all you can do. And for me, it's just all I can ask for my rabbi literally says a very short prayer kind of under his breath before every meal. It's his version of grace, if you will. And it's basically a prayer that says, this is just to remind me that I'm so fortunate that I don't have to suffer or think about where my next meal is coming from. And I'm so grateful for being able to have this meal before me. So thank you, God, is basically what he does. And I try to do that. And you're right, actually, as we were talking, I got a text from my wife. She's like, do you want kava? I'm like, yeah, of course I want kava. (laughs) It's interesting because it's one of those things where not only is it culturally important because it brings us together and each of us have our own cultures. There's certain foods that have so much meaning and it represents kind of who we are, right? It's also something that we're constantly thinking about. I don't care who you are. Those people who don't go hungry think about food almost as much as people who do go hungry. It is such an important staple of life and comfort. And culture and connectivity. And I think that that's something that we don't talk about enough. We talk about it almost always in the pejorative, which is eat less or eat this, eat that. We bully people into like a nutrition or diet, or I can't believe you're eating that piece of meat because you're killing us or you're killing the environment. There's a lot of judgment associated with the food narrative. Whereas you're flipping it and saying, fine, there are people who are going to judge based on nutrition and whatnot and the environment. But what about all those people that are Food insecure, and what about all the food that goes to waste? And let's not judge anymore. Let's bring people in and call them in instead of calling them out. Do you have siblings? I do. I have an older brother. What's he doing? I'm just kind of curious.
1: He's uh, up in Boston, and he works at Pfizer in biochem. That I
0: honestly don't really understand, to be honest. (laughs) Hopefully, he's part of this vaccine team. Are your parents still in Manhattan or on the East Coast? No, they actually moved back to Korea. They never got used to it. About five years ago, they moved back permanently to
1: Seoul in South Korea, and they love it. They're back in familiar-ish surroundings. So they speak the language, and they're loving it. My mom actually is going back to college. It's kind of insane.
0: Are you even 30 yet? I'm turning 30 in January. That's awesome. You've accomplished so much. Now, we have a lot of people who listen who dream about what you're doing in that it's a huge step, whether you are creating a social impact business or just creating a business, right? Leaving the comfort of your current situation, comfort the capital C or lowercase C, it doesn't matter, but basically knowing that you're having a paycheck, you were in financial services. How scary was it after just a year of doing like the side gig of putting this together, saying, all right, I've made enough. I can always go back to that, but this is something I'm really passionate about. Was it scary or did you even give it a lot of thought or did you just kind of go for it and not overthink it?
1: It was so scary. I still remember even telling my boss. I was shaking. I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't know if this is a good idea. Everyone there at JPMorgan Morgan were so supportive. And some of them are even donors to this day. And so they even offered me like a part-time thing to help me. To be honest, I think it was just a lot of planning and a lot of thought. And there was a moment where I was like, I'm gonna do this, and that was the gut feeling of it. But to support that and to make it a reality, I think it was really prudent to do all the analyses and figure out how much budget I needed to do to live, to extend my savings as much as possible and to make this a reality. I even set myself some goals and some limits of how I would, I would wanna reach this point by this date, and if I don't, then I'm gonna go find something else. There were some scary moments where it was like, this is not working out, and <laughs> I'm gonna to have to move on. I'm super lucky to be incubated by the Blush Labs, by Robin Hood Foundation and things like that. And so it is extremely scary, but I think it's extremely worth it.
0: Did you ever play out scenarios in your mind? Well, okay, if this all goes to shit, at the very least, I can fall back on what I did earlier because I've got some skills there. I left on good terms. It's one of the situations where, imagine if it did go to shit and thank God it didn't and it won't. Your story is so compelling. It's like, hey, you know, I left a lucrative job and I wanted to start this amazing nonprofit, and here's why. It didn't work out. So it's not like I was fired, I was let go, I didn't like my boss, all these other kind of whiny reasons or whatever, other legitimate reasons to leave. It is such an amazing story arc, and it's very genuine in who you are. So you probably took a little bit of comfort in that, and that's very rational. I give you a lot of credit. It is not an easy thing to do. As someone started a business 15 years ago and I'm starting another one now, I remember the first year is scary. You know, you have to beg banks to like clear your checks so you can make payroll or pay your vendors. You have to personally guarantee everything, which is scary. Even if you registered as an LLC or as a nonprofit, you still are personally liable and people don't realize that. One last question for you and for our listeners. How can we help as an average listener, whether it's through a donation to you, how do we make this organization be its best self and do the most it possibly can?
1: I think there's just so many ways people can help. And the number one thing I always ask is just start to see excess food, right? And I think it's one of those things where like sometimes you hear a brand or something and then all of a sudden you see the brand everywhere. I kind of want to do the same thing, but for excess food. I think people typically don't even see excess food. They don't even see leftovers. They don't even think about it. And I think mostly what I want to do is really start to have people notice it. And then once people start to be aware of the fact that it is a huge problem, that we have all this excess food going to waste and contributing to greenhouse gases and all that stuff, I think then we can start thinking about the solutions. And I think one of the solutions is rescuing off cuisine where we can actually take that excess food to those in need and obviously people can donate can volunteer on our website at rescuinglusterpuisine.org but i'd say the number one way that has been super helpful for us is just spreading the word follow us on social media and be involved in some of the campaigns we're doing like the clean out your fridge day every hashtag is gonna get us 10 bucks so you don't have to donate yourself you can just you know do the hashtag participate in the challenge make a meal out of any leftovers you have in the fridge, and it'll go a long way. And I think the more people talk about it, the more people care about it, the money and the partnerships and companies and food businesses will start to care because they, at the end of the day, care about their bottom line. They care about their customers. And if the customers care about food waste, then they're going to start partnering with organizations like ours and making sure that food rescue is built into their operations. That's what we want to do. So I'd say number one thing, just start to think about
0: food waste and you have three times a day to make an impact. So do what you can. Robert, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show and to hear your story and your personal story and to hear about your journey and how you're helping literally millions of people currently in the U.S. And I know that this is gonna go global at some point and I can't wait to see that take off and anything that we can do to help you, obviously. We're here for you guys, so thanks again. I really appreciate helping us spread the word, obviously, in this way and with the PR team. It's been amazing. So
1: thank you again for all the amazing help. Absolutely, Robert. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always-on-point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this
0: podcast.
1: Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com, follow our Instagram at theboppodcast, and learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com.